Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. here with another episode of Small Doses. Uh, I find myself in the honorable position of being joined today by a scholar, by an intellect, (laughs) by a hilarious individual, um, also by a master black spurt. Uh, We have with us today author Mr. Charles M. Blow. Hello, Amanda. Nice Hello, Charles. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. Um, let me first say though that though I am a huge fan, my mother j- outfans me. Like, she, <laughs> did you see what Charles said? How, did you see what Charles did in the video? Like, she's very on top of your uh, your social commentary. Thank and you. I said thank you. I will definitely tell her like she's about the book. She's just she's ready. She's ready. Uh, I want to start off off just off top by saying that Charles's book, The Devil You Know, a Black Panther manifesto, Black is, Power Manifesto. What did I say? Panther. <laughs> a Black Power Manifesto <laughs> is uh, is available, and so I would like you all to invest. And I say invest because. There's shit that we be buying right now, particularly in this pandemic, that we all know is some bullshit that we're just buying. Um, you know, whether it's a U a USB blender um, or sneakers that no one's gonna see, uh, guilty. Uh, and then there's shit that we're buying in this in this pandemic that is ultimately gonna get us through it, and uh, that that helps us become better people in the midst of it. And that is what I believe. I haven't even read it, but I already know (laughs) if you wrote it, that's what it is. Um, And just to sing your praises a bit more, I just feel like there's, there's a cacophony of voices out here these days that um, it may seem 
for some people, very difficult to determine and discern, like, who's saying some shit that needs to be listened to and who's just talking because they have an ability and a platform to talk. And so I want to uh, tell everybody that I wholeheartedly uh, and vehemently am behind Charles as one of the people that you should be listening to. Thank you so much. So let's just, okay, this is side effects of black power. So just in a, in a nutshell, what is black power? Well, to me, uh, Black power is political power, economic power, and, 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 and cultural power. Uh, and we have uh, small amounts of that in varying levels in each one of those categories. Uh, our, our biggest power right now is cultural power. Uh, yes. The ability to, to, to um, you know, uh, affect how culture is shaped. But even in that power, we don't get the economics from it. Mm-hmm. And, and politics barely even touches that. We have some economic power, but, but not nearly as much as we should have uh, or wield it in a way that is the most powerful for us. And we have very limited political power. And that is why I wrote this book. So in writing this book, are you wanting us to just be able to clearly identify our, this power so that we can better wield it? Like, because I feel like a lot of people think that black folks have power or, and, and for what it's worth, I feel like there's a lot of folks who, who also be talking like we ain't got shit. And I'm like, I think that there's a, I'm not going to say a happy medium, but I think there's, there's a lot of distorted views amongst like what power actually means uh, even as it relates to like our political power, like, and I would love to hear you just speak more to like, when you talk about these different frameworks of power, you know, political, economic, cultural, et cetera, what is it, where do we miss, did we miss the mark or what are we missing the mark on in harnessing that power? I feel like first we even need to be identify it, but I'm just, I would love to hear you speak to that. Uh, white supremacy has stripped us of the ability to be in space where we could harness our political power. At the end of the Civil War, three states were majority Black. Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina. Three more states were within four percentage points of being majority Black. If you know, I understand why we migrated. It was because, as Brian Stevenson says, we were refugees from terror. Mm-hmm. And also economically, we were, uh, were not being treated well. Uh, and we were not part of the political system at that point because of Jim Crow. However, if we had not migrated, we would control up to 14 Senate seats in America. We would control more electoral college votes or be the majority stakeholders in that than California and New York State combined. Wow. That's what political power looks like. And that's what scared the hell out of white people in the South. And so when you go back and read the newspaper, this is what I did for this book, read the newspaper articles written by people who became part of the Constitutional Conditions to write white supremacy into the code. And they're writing saying, we have to find a way to not be the minority among these Black people. We have to find a way to make sure that they cannot cast a ballot. And, and, and I thought that it would be more subtle, 
I thought because I thought you know some for some you know you think about like you think about the Klan or whatever terrorist groups roaming the country. These are the politicians. These are the journalists of the time. These are the the white church at the time. These were the people who were putting on paper that they they explicitly wanted to remove you as the majority because if you had the majority, you'd have power. And what I am saying to Black people is, number one, you can't let that victory stand. Right. You could have controlled that region, but you didn't because you 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 had to flee that terror. Yeah. But now you're not the majority in any state in America. White people have been the majority of every state but Hawaii for the last 90 years. Within the next 20 years, Hispanics will be the majority of like six or seven of the southeastern states. In 20 years uh, or 20 or 30 years, Asians will outnumber Black people in America. And nowhere on that map does it say that Black people will have a majority stake in any, in any state. Now, you have to ask yourself as a Black person, do I really want power or not? Because there's a way to get it. That's my, that, keep going. That was my next question. But do you want it or not? And people have been talking about this kind of a proposal for 100 years, at least. Do you want state power? Now, it's, it's, and this is not new. White people did it first. Two young Yale uh, uh, law students wrote a, uh, an article in the Yale Law Review called, I think, Jamestown 70. And they argued to the young white hippies who kept um, protesting against the Vietnam War. If you want revolution, you have to do something what we call radical federalism. You have to take over a state, take over Vermont. A writer picks that up and writes a, a column in uh, a story in Playboy magazine under the headline, Take Over Vermont. Young white hippies in the Northeast, by the tens of thousands, pick up their stuff and move to Vermont. And they they, and they didn't have anywhere to stay, by the way. I'm, I'm not, oh, they were just... They were literally sleeping in the fields. They established communes. It they was Occupy Vermont. It, it, was, it was a political colonization explicitly for political purposes. And they changed Vermont from one of the most conservative states in the union to now it is literally one of the most liberal states in America. Barack Obama gets his highest percentage of the black vote in 2008. Where? In Vermont. And that is because of a political movement of people saying, take over a state. It is completely legal. It is constant. It's not divided the constitution. And it is where the real power resides. If you want, if you want to talk about all the things that people say they're marching about, mass incarceration, mainly a state issue. Uh, the criminal code is largely set at the state level. Most of the crimes that you will ever be accused of set at the state level. Health policy, largely state. Educational policy, who's picking up the, 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 the um, textbooks that your children are learning from? Right. State. You have so, to decide if you want power. So, okay. I, um, I know that 
Because oh, I feel like I have that conversation quite a bit where I'm just like, you have to decide that you want to save yourself. You have to decide that you want power. You have to decide that you want to change your life. Um, you know, these were with exes that I have uh, um, been with. Is that why they're exes? That is correct. <laughs> that is why they are exes. Um, because I realized that I had made the decision to save them and they had not made the decision. <laughs> and and what, what, what I felt like oftentimes was the conversation was them bringing up obstacles that I just didn't have. Um, and I think, you know, so, and, and their obstacles were real, right? So it may be economic, it may be even cultural. Like I dated someone from Detroit and he was like, you know, we just live in a hater. It's just a very hater environment here. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, people just don't want each other to win. So there's just a cloud of like, doubt that you feel like you're always fighting against and it fucks with your psyche. And that was something that I hadn't experienced in the way that he had experienced it. Like I've experienced white people not really want me to win, but like my immediate circle has always been like, get on up. You know, we're going to, we're going to do this together. So I want, so in this conversation, we, you know, okay, yes, these white hippies, they were able to get up and move to Ravant and be able to seize that power. What are the real limitations that black folks are facing, in your opinion, that prevent us from being able to seize power in the same way, if any? Right. So, so migration is always a tough choice that a person has to make. When people moved during the Great Migration, it was a tough choice. Not everyone moved. The majority of black people never moved out of the South. People with property, and who were doing relatively well, who were black, they're like, I'm not going in the middle of Chicago for nothing. I have, <laughs> I have an estate. Right? <laughs> they, they didn't move. Right. Uh, people who were extremely poor had no way to figure out how they were going to make it if they were to move. Some of them did not move. So there's always a self-selecting group of kind of go-getters, people who are adventure lust. Those people are always more motivated. So no, in no in no mass migration, whether it's the gold rush, whether it's the dull, uh, dust bowl, my, move, people moving west because of that, uh, no migration does everybody move. There's a smaller segment of population who's motivated and open to the possibility. So that's the first thing to say. The second thing is to, to dispel the mythology that the South is all backwards and dusty and, and retrograde. <laughs> Uh, be, because the black middle class is doing incredibly well in many of these Southern cities. And in fact, when Forbes does his list of uh, places where the black middle class is thriving, half of the list is in the South. Half of it. Mm. Uh, when you do look at uh, places where small, where black owned businesses are thriving, the number one segment uh, section of this country where that's yeah. happening is in the Southeast. So this idea that like, oh, this is, you can't make it or it's not great. That's the problem. Also, uh, people think that the entire region is rife with racism and everything, all your rights will be uh, on, clamped down. Well, let me take you, tell you something, which is also my experience. There are 1,200 majority Black cities in America. 90% of them are in the South. 1,200? 90%? 90% of those cities. There is not a single majority Black city in all of California. There is only one in the entire state of New York, and that's Yonkers. But if you go south, like where I'm in Atlanta, this is a majority black city. Mayor's yeah. black, uh, 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 chief police is black. You don't tense up around the police in, in Atlanta. Re- why? In fact, why? I, because you don't feel like they're hunting you. 
I the first I remember the first month or two I was here and there's a building across from me and they were the building was under construction. They had some sort of delivery of construction that went into the street. And so the police were blocking out the street mm -hmm. and I'm leaving and I don't know where I was going. And I heard somebody says, Charles Blow, Charles Blow. I'm like, oh my God. And I realized it's coming from the cops car. And you know, my thing's like, oh, what is going on? <laughs> and I go up to the cop car and he says, man, I just want to shake your hand and thank you. Now, was this a black cop or a white cop? Black cop. And I was just like, because it's a majority black force. And I'm just like, what kind of? It's just not the experience you have. No. In New York, it's just not that experience. So, so I, I always try to get people to understand that a one fourth of all black people right now live under black municipal control, and that is in the South. Where are you from originally? I'm from a small town called Gippsland, Louisiana, which is a majority black little town in Louisiana. And so, did you move from Louisiana to Atlanta? Or did you live, have you lived in any of these like non-majority black cities? Yes. Yeah, so, but so my entire existence up until the time I moved to New York was majority black, right? So I was born in Shreveport, it's majority black city. Lived in Gippsland, majority black city, majority black high school. Uh, went to Grambling State University, majority black city, majority black school. Yeah. Left there and went to Detroit, majority <laughs> black city. Yep. Even, even when I moved to the, to New York, I moved to Prospect Heights, which was at that point majority <laughs> black, and that's uh, 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 Shirley Chisholm's old district. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, right. Uh, and so then I moved into Park Slope, looking for great schools, and that was the first experience I have ever had where I was not black. People were not in the majority. Where I'm living. You know, this is rare, right? I understand that, but I what I what I what I only say it to say to black people it's possible. If you, if you have there we have been without power so long, we don't I even know, know what it feels like. It scares some black people to think that they would be in an all-black city. Yes. It scares some of them because they're like, what does that feel like? They're so used to the white accoutrement. They're so used to white institutions. They're so used to white museums. They're so used to white symphony orchestras. They're so used to white opera that they don't even, they, they can't wrap their heads around a place like New Orleans where blackness is central to the culture of the entire city. It's the food, it's the music, it's all of it. I mean, I feel like that's by design. Right. Like it's by design that a lot of folks simply can't conceptualize that. I mean, the the greatest trick I feel like they tell you is that you have no power when in actuality it's it's for many of us just dormant. I've had somebody tell me this and I'm curious if this I mean, it seems like this is your belief that really what needs to happen is that we all need to migrate back to the South. Absolutely. That's the whole thrust of the book. As many people as possible. And so in the book, I mean, and I, what are the methods through which you prove this to us? I mean, you, you, you're a researcher, so well, I know. First of all, it's already happening. But by my, by my estimation, more people have, not, more millennials alone have now moved back to the South than moved North, all the people who moved North in the first wave of the Great Migration. Now, the black population is four times as big as it was at that time. So it's not percentage-wise, it's not the same. But okay. you should know it's already the same. It's already happening. 
People are just making the choice for other reasons. They've been priced out. There's been gentrification. There's been a hostile police force and they get tired of getting stopped at frisk. All sorts of reasons they, they mm-hmm. have. I mean, my mom moved to Florida from L.A. because of two reasons. One, she was like, I can't take another earthquake. And two, because she, I went to the bank and they gave her a counterfeit $20 bill that she did not know was counterfeit. Then she went to Ralph's and she paid with her $20 bill. And literally, she walks away with her grocery bags and the LAPD handcuff her. And that's that. Like, there's no, like, conversation. It's, you know, I mean... We, as we have learned with George Floyd, like this $20 bill counterfeit thing, it, they're just like running rampant. And so she was like, oh, we can never, we can't be here anymore. Right. She was like, I don't ever want to deal with the LAPD again. And I'm like, but then you moved to Florida. Yes. <laughs> so, so I'm not really sure that you had done a full realm of research, but I, um, and I know that if I wasn't in this industry that I'm in, I would feel more compelled and more more ready to move. Now, I say that not knowing what the next four years will bring, right? Like, because I do feel like I have a time limit on LA, um, which, you know, I also didn't know that we were going to be in a pandemic. But when this had been brought to me before, I was like, could I move back to the South? Could I do it? Because, well, for the reasons that you had stated Living in Atlanta is a specific experience. Okay. Living in New Orleans is a specific experience. Yes. And I feel like I, New Orleans is the only other place that I would move um, because of that. Because New Orleans feels like another country. Yes, yes, it does. It doesn't even feel like it's, you know, a part of this whole American bullshit paradigm. But it also has its own issues, and, and that's fair. But I feel like the South, to me, just didn't feel... Like when I got out of Florida, I felt freer as a thinker, as a creative. Um, and I know that part of that is also because of like the, my environment that I was around, right? Like, you know, I'm in Orlando, just got very white. Uh, and culture seemed to take a back seat to nothing actually it just it just got pushed to the back like it just wasn't it wasn't centered i mean and we would go to eatonville and we would do the zordia hearst festival and my mom was making like concerted efforts to really keep me um involved in like the the bits of blackness that were being like presented but it just felt like I didn't want to be in Florida. Have you, have you spent any time, a significant amount of time in Florida? I mean, what, what is a significant amount of time? I don't know what that means. Have you lived there? I have never lived in Florida. It's a special place. Um, it's not, that, that's why Floridians always feel like we're having to defend Florida because it's so backwards and it's not a, it's not, and I think this is what a lot of us feel about the South. It doesn't feel progressive. And then, to your point, you're like, well, then how is it going to progress if we don't progress it? Right. Well, what, what my thing is, I make a I make a very passionate plea that, you know, I have lived in the South half my life and I've lived outside of the South half my life. And it is, I feel very strongly that there are two Black Americas Big generalities here because there's also uh, immigrants and 
people from the Caribbean and people from Africa, but generally speaking, they're the sons and daughters of great migration and sons and daughters of people who stayed in the South. And those cultures are very different. There is a creative, progressive, uh, activist-minded uh, uh, sensibility that exists in these destination cities that people migrated to. And there is a pragmatic, uh, long view, uh, ancestral rootedness in the South because those families have been there for some part of 400 years. Mm-hmm. And if you could marry those two elements in mm-hmm. one space, I just believe that there's magic in there. I always tell people like they, they got so used to the culture that we created in New York or LA or whatever, the black culture. I said, those were a bunch of country boys and girls from the South who did that. And if they can create it in New York or Chicago or LA, they can go back to the South and do the same thing because our magic is not geographically dependent. Well, that was going to be my next question, you know, because we always talk about black girl magic and black folks are magical, et cetera, et cetera. And what do you quantify as our magic? Our ability to adapt. I mean, those people moved to the, up to North. They didn't have anything. They would live in cramped conditions and they still flourished and they still created the, you know, the, the, the Harlem Renaissance comes out of the great migration. They landed, they didn't have much, but they, it, this outpouring of creativity comes out of that. Just being away from yeah. their parents and their grandparents and their churches and creating all that stuff new, newly. Um, there's an energy in that that unleashed in us possibility. And I'm saying that energy still exists. You are not trapped in Chicago. You are not trapped in Detroit. And you don't have to buy into their civic jingoism because you like the lions and you like the cubs. They're what? Civic jingoism, which means break it down for me, please. You, you, this, all the, all those are PR campaigns that get you attached to the city based on a team that is giving you no money and you still have to pay thirty five dollars to get into the game, right? There's, you get no benefit from that, and you're why buying jerseys and arguing with your cousin over over Instagram, (laughs) right? That's not real power. That is how they get you attached to the city and build civic pride, which is part of what they want to do. But unless that civic pride translates into actual power that gets the the Chicago police to stop shooting unarmed black men. Because I really be feeling like, particularly, and I mean, I'm a hip hop head and it just, I feel like that's where I first really really realize this, but like the civic pride of black folks in particular is, it just feels like it's on another level than any other cultural group. I feel like other groups more have a cultural pride and our civic pride ends up overriding our cultural pride. Like I created Smart, Funny and Black because I felt like I wanted to create a space where our cultural pride is the centerpiece and where it's demonstrated over and over again through music, through jokes, like shared inside jokes that just black people have, you know, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And I've never heard, but I mean, I I just, I'm just, I'm loving hearing you talk about this. I've never heard of civic pride as, I've never heard somebody enumerate what I felt, which is that the civic pride thing is holding us back because Mm -hmm. niggas will, will kill another motherfucker from a different block just off of this like pride of my block. And I'm like, but you're, 
on this block. You've gotten arrested on this block. Like you, you've been beat down on this block. Like you've done, you've killed people on this block. You've had people that you know killed on this block. Like you hustled on this block. What is it about this space that you feel such kinship to? And I, I mean, I attribute that to the fact that just black folks have had so much taken from us that any space that we can inhabit, we are going to hold on to it. And but, but, but you have to break down what, what we were talking about before. The, the the pillars of power, the cultural power, the economic power, the political power. Very often, we don't own not one inch of that block. No. And in many cities, even if you can own a co-op or a condo or something, a small one, the co-op owns the land. You right. just own the right to live up in the sky three floors off the ground. Right. right. One of the greatest tragedies of the Great Migration is that the percentage of Black land ownership shrank from about 25%. Now it's less than 1%. We own less than 1% of all, what do they call it, uh, arable lands or something in America. And how, I mean, is how does that get back? I mean, is that what we're talking about in Queen Sugar when they're like, let's come back here and... Yes, and- yes, yes. One of the things that people did when they migrated, some of them had uh, an interest in in property and they either sold it for dirt cheap or just abandoned it. I, I mean, I have never gotten over the fact that my father sold the house, the family house in Boston that had been in the family for how many years? Because I guess he had some type of emotional attachment or disattachment to it. And I'm like, you have five children. Why would you disrupt legacy building? in terms of property. My uncles in Grenada, it's not America, but it's the same idea. It's like, we had property, you had land. Yes. And I don't know. I don't know that, like I'm on these internets and I don't know that people understand even what the concept of all these different spaces of power that you're talking about. Like when I see people talking about power, you know what they keep talking about? getting a reparations check. That seems to be the centerpiece for a lot of just everyday Black folks that I see talking about, like, how do we get power, particularly with this new regime, right? This new presidency. And my question keeps being, okay, once you get the reparations check, then what? And I don't really know that there's a plan. (laughs) For those of y'all who are just listening and not seeing, my dog just ran up on the couch and started humping my arm. And I am embarrassed. Um, And Charles saw it and tried to keep a face. Why are you acting like this, dog? He would be so good. Um, So I guess... How do you get to people? How do you get this message? Because I honestly feel like you wrote a book and the people who are going to read the book are people that already agree with you. I hope not. And, 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 and I actually make a specific argument about reparations in the book, Talk which is that, is, that that, is that that is a mountain with two peaks. You know, one is the moral peak. You cl- clearly, we clear that one. It is owed. Absolutely. The, the other one is the political one. They can, they can you know, getting that through Congress is almost impossible with this certain this this present kind of a makeup of Congress. Now, how do you make your chances better in Congress? Senate seats. Yes. So if you you take these states, you you didn't control up to fourteen Senate seats. You now get 
that heard, even if it doesn't get passed. It's not even going to get heard right now. Number two, uh, reparations can be both state, local, uh, federal, state, and local. Okay. There are states now who are studying whether or not to play reparations. What does it look like to you? What does reparations look like to you? Is it a check? Is it, does it stop at a check? Like how, what does it look like to you? Listen, I, I, I find, I, I think that, you, first of all, the idea of studying how to deal with it is smart. However, I am a check person. Uh, nobody told you how to use the money that my ancestors' labor produced. Mm-hmm. Don't don't try to uh, earmark mine for college. Right. I'll pay for the colleges if I want to do that. It's write the check. I'm I'm a big person, a believer in the check because it, there is a number on that uh, th- that amount of labor and what how much wealth it generated. I don't know the number, but economists can figure that number out. Who gets the check? I think, it, it, I think again, you know, we can study that and figure out how to deal with it. But I'm just saying, I am not opposed to the idea of checks. I, when I think when people, you know, twist themselves in like up like pretzels, trying to figure out, well, let's do empowerment zones here and a college over here <laughs> and small business loans over here. No, you can write a check. I don't mind that. Is it both though? Because to me, it's to me, it's both. It's like I, we get the checks it, and we get the resources. It can be. I'm just saying. I just want to be on the record saying I am not opposed. <laughs> to the check. Okay, here's another question. Is it one check? Is it a check over? Is it like a pension? Well, well honestly, uh, this country has been living f- for centuries now off of the continual growth of our labor. So how are you going to just pay us one time? Reparations are paid all around the world in different by different countries in different ways. Different Sometimes ways. people get it over life. Uh, so you can figure out how we need to deal with it. Okay. And so... To that point, when you were talking about, you know, the ways in which this power gets distributed, um, it I just I just want you to talk more. I feel like I'm doing a lot of talking, and I <laughs> well, you're and, and I'm like, and I'm like, and I'm like, I know Charles is a very loquacious person, so I'm like, back on me right now. But, I'm not holding back. I was just answering your questions. I didn't know you had more questions. No. Uh, like when we talk about this it, it's like there's like you you said you made a, a case in the book for the fact that like you don't want to just you talk about reparations but you make a case for the fact that like there are people that are going to read this book and there's people who are not going to read this book and how do you get to those people yes listen I, let me just step back and say this um the only reason that you had oppressive systems in this country was because of white people, primarily white men, primarily wealthy white men. Right. The only reason that you don't have the things that you want, whether it be uh, uh, police reform or uh, a dismantling of of uh, uh, mass incarceration or whatever the case may be, is because the white men uh, in Congress or in the courts decide they don't want to let you have it. Mm-hmm. And we need to stop talking euphemisms about the system this and the system that. Yeah, this is the system. The system is a bunch of white men who don't want you to have this, and that's and they get the final say. And right now, uh, black liberation is centered around white power, meaning you have to either guilt them into changing their mind. Yes. 
You have to pressure them into changing their mind. You have to overcome their resistance, but it is centered around them. And what this proposal says is, can you imagine the possibility where your liberation did not require their guilt or their participation even, or their persuasion? Mm -hmm. You just move. And you elect the people and you engage to you, Move you and, and you engage. And you don't have to ask permission and you don't have to have any more of these interminable race discussions, which is basically us describing how you've hurt us and can you <laughs> and, and, and waiting to see if you're empathetic. That it, all, mm. whenever people say things like, you know, we there, there, there's racial discord in America. No, there's not. Because that assumes that there are two people arguing towards a right. position. Yes. And that's not the case. That is never the case. There are people who have been oppressed who are revolting against their oppression. They take breaks and then they revolt again and nothing changes. And they take a break and they revolt again. And every time they revolt, they say, well, there's a racial disturbance. We need to be unit. We need to find some unity again. When unity, in fact, to America, white America means black people being quiet. Yes. Black people being appeased or yeah. just like, you know, being given some level of mollification. Like, okay, here's a sucker to Oh, you just get tired. Sometimes they don't give you anything. But but the protests die down. You're worn out. You just get worn or you out. Have to, or you have to live. Yes. You know, like I forgot who I was. I forgot who I saw what documentary I was watching, but they were like, you know, we didn't protest all the goddamn time in the civil rights movement because we had jobs. <laughs> like yeah. We had to yes. actually feed our families and live and we couldn't just be in the street all the time. And even if you do protest all the time, I mean, the Montgomery bus, bus boycott was over a year. Yes, but they had rotation. They did, it, they did it for longer than a year. And yet that still doesn't always work. Montgomery did not budge. The white men in power in Montgomery did not budge. And it was over a year. And it wasn't until the white men in the Supreme Court ruled against the state of Alabama that that boycott was broken. Even in the Montgomery boycott, it was white people. Our, our, our success was centered around white people's choice to allow us to succeed. It was the white men on the Supreme Court who had to do that. Because Montgomery didn't budge. So when we talk about where we are now, right? Because I feel like I, you know, naturally there's a lot of conversation around like, what do we do next as black folks? What do we do next? What does protest look like? You know, what is challenging the system look like? I see a lot of folks who are like, well, voting makes no, makes no sense. There's no point in voting. Um, we're not going to get any power that way because black people have no power. What do you say to those people? And until you do, which is what, Georgia taught us. Georgia is the first time, this election cycle is the first time, uh, at least since Reconstruction, that Black people were the majority of the coalition voting for the winning candidate in the state. Think about that. The first time. Georgia hadn't went, gone for Democrats since 1992. Black people only made up 25% uh, of the state of Georgia in 1992. Now it's 33% of the state of Georgia. The Black population doubled from 1990 to 2020. 100, it, it was 1.7 million people. Now it's 3.4 million people. Black wow. people in Georgia. So it was two things happening. 
amazing organizing by all those groups, you know, people Absolutely. like Stacey Abrams, Superwoman. At the same time, massive number of new bodies to actually organize. Yeah. That's what power looks like. We had never been the lead of a coalition that elected a senator in American history, since in the history of the Senate until Georgia this cycle. I just like that that's because of reverse migration. You're affirming things that I have said that I was being theoretical about and you're confirming them (laughs) because, um, you know, I'll be the first to say like a lot of the shit I'd be saying is just like, I feel like I'm just coming from a common sense space. And I, I feel like we started this conversation with you talking about the fact that like we have so many of us have just been here in the state of being that we've been in, that we can't even fathom a different way of existing within this country. And when I saw people over the course of this election cycle being like, there's no point, there's no black people don't have enough power. We need to hold our votes because they're not going to do nothing from us, nothing for us. I'm like, but we haven't even gotten a chance to see what happens when we really show up in a real way because we right. I mean even when we and even when we did in the civil rights movement like there were still so many people that didn't vote for obvious reasons right and so and we did show in those numbers that we were effective which is why gerrymandering became so effect like so much a important part of things and voter suppression became even written into law so I just I just <sighs> I get so frustrated, Charles, when I'm on these internets because I feel like what you're talking about feels so foreign to folks. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, but you, those people should see what it felt like on the ground here in Atlanta. Mm. I didn't know anybody who did vote early. Everybody took a picture of a little sticker. Everybody took a picture. And it was like, it was a prideful moment. Everybody was saying, can you go vote with me? Did you vote already? I need somebody to go vote. I want to do it with somebody else. This whole idea of like uh, disengagement and passivism, none of that existed in Atlanta. And that is also, I think, part of the beauty when I'm talking about the marriage of like this activism and influx of people back to the South and also that Southern 400 years, the tree you passed by might have one day, you know, 100 years ago felt the wiggle of a body at the end of a rope. Like your, your, your sweat and blood has watered this soil. There is a you. I'm standing in the line. That that is that is the sensibility here, and also that was in, energized by the the very real possibility that this time you could overcome the hurdle. Right. You could, and and that possibility was so energizing to people here. It was amazing. Because I've been living in New York for 26 years. You go vote. You know, nobody says, they know it's going to be a blue state. So yeah. you just do it because it's your civic duty. But there's no real excitement around voting in New York. That wasn't the case in in Atlanta, in Georgia. So let's just backtrack. How did you get to this space as a historian, as a researcher, as a writer, as a, con- like, how did you get here? <laughs> I was exhausted. You know, I, I, you know, I, I write in a book about interviewing so many of the mothers of the movement and kind of watching their very familiar patterns of, they kind of behave the same. They vacillate between crying and laughing all the time mm-hmm. when you spend a lot of time with them. And uh, they go from, they've learned how to be incredible public speakers, but as soon as it's over, it's like, 
the breath comes out of them or like they'll like my mother like grab my arm and kind of collapsed and i would i would constantly see them like puff up and do the thing and then like literally collapse and constantly whispering to me like, i just want to go home i just want to go to sleep i just want to close the door and never come out and you're like this cannot be the cycle this idea of like perpetual trauma yeah and there is no recourse and these are, and most of those cities where I was going to visit these people were so supposedly liberal cities. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, this is not, this is not the move. I'm in Cleveland. I'm in New York. Are these the places, aren't these supposed to be the liberal places? Right. And I just, I, I, I part of this book is, is convincing people that there is no place in America where racism does not exist, including your liberal cities. And this is how they too have betrayed you. Every time that Quinnipiac asked the citizens of New York if they agreed with stop and frisk, which is an egregious, egregious, egregious practice, the majority of white people in New York City, every single time said they agreed with it. <laughs> Just because you are liberal and uh, uh, on uh, try to save the environment and you believe in gay marriage and you want a woman who has to choose does not mean that you are a racial egalitarian. Many of those very same people are also white supremacists because they also harbor the belief that there is a fundamental difference, a hierarchy of people between white and black people. The difference that it seems to me is that some people don't like the cruelty. It's uncomfortable. It's yucky. It's right. But they still, but they still they absolutely are like believe. this, y'all. Absolutely. And there's us. And you see it, in, in, and researchers have been able to tease this out. I quote one researcher in the book who does uh, a sociological uh, research around real estate in Cook County, which is Chicago. And what she says, she looks at, at asks people, like, what do kind of neighborhoods do they want? Liberals always say, oh, I want a diverse neighborhood. When they figure out what they actually want and what kind of houses they buy, that's the tale. Where are you gonna put your money now? Where are you gonna make where are you gonna where are you gonna get the deed? Right. Right. So that's the tale. Black people are always like black people and Hispanics, just equal, just three and thirty, a third, a third, a third, that's fine. I don't care. White people always, their their ideal diversity, they are always in the majority. That's their version of diversity. Your your version of diversity is I'm in control, but I can get I can get a beef patty and yes. I can get a bed roll and I you know and I come back home. I love just this. I love the idea of what did you call it? R- radical federalism. Radical federalism. Because, you know, I think a lot of the conversations that I feel like it had are very theoretical. And once you add word, once you add like words to it, it becomes an actual thing. This isn't just some idea. This is a thing that happened. These people did it and it was done. And now here's the outcome. I, I think, um, one of the biggest hurdles to the conversation that this, that this book has is convincing people that time and patience can get results. 
because I feel like even even the fact that people are like, why didn't Biden give us reparations on day one? And I'm like, okay. First of all, he never said he was going to do that. So that's just like a foolhardy mission. Like, I don't even know why you thought he was going to do that. But also, like, it's day one. Like, I don't know anything that has just changed day one. And a lot of people are like, well, he changed all these other things on day one. But I feel like he just reversed them back to what they were before. I'm not sure that he really, like, made any revolutionary Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't I don't feel like he did any real revolution, except for the the Keystone Pipeline. But to my knowledge, that also was something that was put in power by this jackass. And so it was just reversed back. So. But I, I saw I saw an interview with Nikki Giovanni and um, Angela Davis, and they were asking her, like, what's the point of protesting? And she was like, because this is a process and change requires a consistent practice of chipping away. And well, I so guess many- I- I'm coming at it from the other direction, which is leaping over. Meaning, the chipping away. No, I mean, I don't mean, I don't mean this. I'm not agree. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Um, I'm not aligning what you're saying with hers in terms of methodology. I'm just saying the the concept of like even with the leap over, like it took years for these for these hippies. Did did it not take years for these hippies to turn Vermont, or was it immediate? This is always a generational project. The, the, the Great Migration happened over uh, 60 years. Yes. It's always a generational project, but you're doing it for your children. You're doing it for, to feel some power now, but you're doing it so that your kids will have a space in this country where they're not fighting the same battle that you're fighting. I just want, I just, Charles, it just feels like convincing people that that's valuable is, is getting harder and harder. People, if, if they don't get it now, if they can't, get power like a Google search, it just seems like they don't want to fight. Like, it just feels like, I feel like a lot of the energy that I get from folks and tell me if it's different in Atlanta. I mean, it seems like it is, but a lot of the energy I get from folks is, well, if we got to do all that, what's the point? Yeah. I, I, I don't have picked up that, <laughs> that, uh, on the street here, but also it's a pandemic. So you don't really get to yeah. see the community. The streets you know? ain't really what they used uh, to. Right, 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 right. Um, but 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 it is it is it is just that simple a question when it comes down to like we have learned how to make poetry of our pain you know we have we have learned how to make an ap- academic pursuit of our suffering we have learned how to we you know uh people in the activist group, it's almost a different language than people on the street speak. Mm-hmm. It, it becomes its own kind of class of academia in yeah. a way. And I'm saying you can dedicate your life to protesting individual infractions. You can dedicate your life to trying to save individual people and all those things are worthy uh, options. What I'm saying is a grand idea, mm-hmm. which is what if there was you you had the power to ensure right you didn't have to chip no away something else you made it you yes. made the marble yes it's, it's it's a much grander vision and you just have to figure out if you want to take part in a grand mission or if you want to protest every time there is another shooting by the police which are not going to stop i know for me when we talk about 
we want to build something for our kids. I feel like the first step is I, I, I feel like we're in this space where we have to convince people that there's a community of us to save. I, I genuinely feel this disconnect from so many black folks that there is an us. Um, go ahead. I, I, I will, I will say to that. It, it, it changes when you have a sense of ownership of political power. Bingo. And that, so that's what I felt here in Atlanta when they when black people went out and did this and they knew they did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they weren't the extra margin when white people disagree roughly 50 bit that we can come in with an extra 5% and boost them over the top. That didn't happen here. It was us. And that's a whole different sense of ownership. One of the saddest interviews I had for this book uh, was interviewing the mayor of New Orleans who started her career as a community organizer after Katrina and mm. trying to get resources. And she slows down and she's talking kind of fast and kind of effervescently. And then she kind of slows down and she says, all the buses that came in to help in New Orleans were white people. None of us came. And you know, maybe that's a resource issue, but there's a lot of black colleges in Louisiana and in those neighboring states. Maybe that's a resource issue. But also, I believe it's a, a sense of ownership issue. That was our city. Yeah. That's where we go for the Bayou Classic. That's where we go for the Essence Festival. That's where we have our big events. That was our city that needed us. And I don't think Black people felt enough sense of ownership of that being ours. And I think that we have to remember that we have our institutions. We have our civic spaces. And part of that is us seeing that we can change things with our civic engagement. That it's not always beating our heads against the wall. It's not us marching up and down the street and stopping traffic and then they still don't yes. ban the chokehold. When you see the result, it's a concrete result that that black man, a preacher at Martin Luther King's church is going to the Senate. That's a concrete yeah. result that you did. I mean, he had to get a dog to do it, but you- Get a dog, do what you gotta do, but it happened. And, and that I think success breeds possibility. Yes, yes. And I think we need to see successes and the story of this success needs to be told by us. Like, I feel like that's your next book. Yes. So if What's you that? didn't know, that's your next book. Ah, like, no, I'm talking about the next book. I, I mean, listen, books, books make me crazy. About, writing a book is, ah, ah, the only thing I've ever done that was more difficult than write a book was do logistics for selling merchandise out of my garage. <laughs> The pride with which you speak about the success of what took place in Georgia, I haven't really heard anybody else speak about it in this way. Now, of course, I've heard many Black folks speak about, like, Georgia did it. But the way that you talk about it in just such um, on-the-ground terms of, like, just the pragmatism, which you spoke about with, like, Southern Black folks that stayed. There's a pragmatism right. that was like, well, if we're going to do it, this is how we got to do it. Exactly. Um, and, and can nobody out and can nobody out organize a bunch of southern black church ladies? Facts. They will get it done. 
And I just feel like that, I want to see, the reason why it's so integral that the story be told by us is because it needs to be told as a marker for how this can mobilize and change. Because what you're telling me with this book is that there's, this is, this is a black power manifesto. And so in the manifesto, how does it manifest? Well, it has to get taught. Yes. So what's the next step for this manifesto? Like, are you partnering with other people that so also everybody buys it? Like, buy this and then they buy into the the realities that you present. Yeah, but but literally, I I I mean I sometimes you have to, you know, there's certain books. The first book I wrote, I was trying, you know, I'm arching to try to demonstrate that I'm a good writer in addition to tell my story and I'm picking up all the words in that. Slight way. flex, by the way, yeah. slight flex. The first book I wrote, I was just trying to show no, you. No, 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 no. But, but, but this, I'm literally, I was like, I'm writing this to black people. Like, I, this is this is not me trying to be, you know, let me see how uh, uh, dexterous I can be with the with the writing. No. This is literally, I want them to read this. I want it to be a little bit shorter. I want you to be able to put it into your briefcase or your purse. I want it to be smaller format. I want Black people to take this and to start having a real discussion at their, uh, in their own homes over their kitchen tables, but also in community. Like, do you think this is a real thing? This is, maybe there's another way to power, but I know this is one. And this one doesn't, this is, this is not bloody. This is not illegal. This is completely legal. Uh, completely constitutional and you don't have to beg anymore and you don't really have to march anymore. You don't have to have racial conversations anymore. You can just do it. You can just do it. You can just do it. It doesn't require permission. It does not require permission from anyone and it doesn't center anyone else but you. And so have you always felt this way? Where did this seed, where was the seed of this song? It just hit me one night and I woke up in the middle of the night and I wrote for like three or four days, no, probably four or five days and rarely slept and rarely ate. And I just wrote and wrote and wrote. It was like 25,000 words and I just sent it to my agent. He didn't know it was coming. I didn't know. I just wrote it and sent it to him. Because it dawned on me after the exhaustion, I was like, it just can't happen. And I said, wait a minute, there's a way. And... I wrote it. And also it occurs, it occurs to me in the writing, even of the proposal that I had basically been making this argument in bits and pieces the entire time I've been writing this column. And so I was drawing from a lot of things that I had already written because it was building the argument. And you, you write for the Times? The New York Times, yes. Yes. How does that work? What does that mean? Well, because I feel like the Times be on some fuck shit quite often, and you're <laughs> not. So how does that work? Like... I, I actually talk about that, too, because, uh, you know, I've just been a newspaper guy my whole life. You know, I... Uh, I actually want to talk about that. Like, I, like, I had asked you earlier, how did you get here? And we and and it, we talked about, like, how you got to this thought process. But I want to know, like, how did you get from Shreveport? Gibsland. Shreveport was where I was born, but I was... That's where you were born. That's where started. So, it was, so I was, you know, I... I remember the first time I visited a newspaper, it was the 4-H Club, and they let us typeset our names on a piece of paper, and I was hooked from that moment. I don't know how young I was. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, this is so cool. And I started a, a high school newspaper. Uh, in high school, I was writing letters to the editor of the Streetport Times, and they 
published a couple of them. Oh. When I got to college, I became, I joined a newspaper, I became editor of the college newspaper. I got newspaper internships, one with the New York Times. That was interesting because New York Times didn't have a graphics intern. And I didn't, I, but my mentor insisted I go. I show up at the New York Times booth. They said, well, you can't. Well, at first I show up at the, at the job fair and they said, you can't come in because you have to sign up in advance. I said, I just drove from Louisiana. Uh, I'm coming. He said, I said, what did, what do you need? And they said, uh, you had to write an essay. No, he said, you had to pay a fee. I said, how much was it? And it was how much was it? I literally gave the security guard the money. I don't, he probably didn't give it. He put it in his pocket. So I gave him the money. I said, and what else did they require? He said, you have to write an essay. I said, do you have a pencil? And I sat on the floor. I wrote an essay on a blank sheet of paper and gave it to that man. I said, you're going to let me into this room. And I got into the room and I went to the New York Times booth. I'm just passing all my things. I got to the New York Times booth and they, same thing. They said, well, we don't have any more slots. Our dance card is free. You have to sign up ahead of time. And, you know, I know I knew this was a gambit, but I said, that's fine. I'll wait till somebody doesn't show up. And I sat down for six hours and I pretended to read the newspaper. <laughs> and... <laughs> I read the same story like 14 times. Uh, but it was good because... Every time somebody else got, they forgot I was sitting there. Every time somebody sat down and got up, I heard every question they asked and answered. And when they left, they would talk about them. Like, oh, I like, I like that. And I like that. So by the, at the end of the day, they're like, you know what? Fine, we'll interview you. But now I know everything <laughs> you want to hear. So, <laughs> so. Where, yeah, okay. But Charles, that... So this is a level of tenacity that does not exist amongst the masses. Where did this get, where was this fostered from? I just it, believe like. This is a parental, I, like where. where I think maybe some, you know, you have to get credit, parental community, black school. Like my, my high school is uh, one of the oldest black schools in Louisiana because it was started as a college, what they call, everything called college that everything in college back then basically was a high school, but it was called Coleman College, was founded to educate the sons and daughters of freed slaves. It is still on the same spot. Wow. It is still on the same So my upbringing, I used to look at, you know, uh, do the right thing, and they were talking about, Saul, why there's no black people on the wall? There was nothing but black people on my wall. Right. From, from, the, the, uh, from the 1800s. And so you grew up in this legacy, and also thinking, I'm poor. I have nothing to lose here. So if I sit here and they don't interview, what am I losing? I don't have anything. The reason I ask this is because you're special and there's things that brought you, that like brought you along to be able to get to this point, right? And I feel like a lot of folks genuinely think that that was some shit that came from like the ancestors that you got. Like you got a special mix of astrology and ancestral like anointment and the guy, the guides and Jesus, et cetera. But on a basic level, you grew up in a place where black was heralded as beautiful. It wasn't seen as a limitation. And it wasn't, it was, and it wasn't a recent vintage. It was like black people had been in this spot of land forever. Right. Like it wasn't no haha, like new money, right. new shit. Right. And you saw blackness as a majority from early on. People ask me all the time, how are you so confident? And I oftentimes I'm like, well, you know, my mom was she really, you know, she really instilled a lot in me. But as you're talking, I'm like, you know what? 
It's because I saw black all, all the time. Every and room like, I ever walked into, a black person was the smartest person in that room. I just always assumed that if I walked into a room, I could be the smartest person in the room. Listen, I would go to Grenada. Grenada is a black country, right? And by the time I'm born, they're, Britain is like long gone. So like I was always taught like these white people are not smarter than you. They may have more, but it's not because they're smarter. You know, they, they, it's because, uh, it's because they're savages. It, they, like, that's what I was taught. Like they cheat, they do all this other shit. It's not by any means because they're more blessed by divine right, et cetera, et cetera. And I just, I, I feel like it's a curriculum of learning that we were fortunate enough to be amongst that creates this for a lot of folks. And I feel like there just aren't enough of our children that come up in this space. And in order for this method that you're, that you enumerated in this book to happen, there has to have that, there has to be more of that, like, like over the course, over this whole nation. But, but one of the things that we had, and this is goes back to, us absorbing white supremacy to the degree that we don't believe that we can be in space with each other and that space always be excellent. So that's how I'm, that's how I'm, that's how I'm raised, right? Back. So we will take our kids halfway across the county. One million percent. The only black person in that classroom, but we believe that that education that they're getting even is so much better that it negates the scars that that child is receiving of always of hesitating to raise their hand because they don't want anybody to believe that they are not smart as everybody else in the room so they don't get all the information or not really believing or, or having to fight the perception that they're there on scholarship and everybody else is paying mm-hmm. tuition or you know th- these kids come out covered in racial scars because they've been bat- they've been in battle their whole life I mean, when I moved to Orlando, like when I was in LA, my mom, my mom makes a point of always sending me pictures that she uncovers of like the group of friends I had when I was growing up here. Cause she's like, remember you were surrounded by blackness. (laughs) And, um, and I got to, I've talked about this on the pod before, but I got to have brunch with my first grade teacher, Miss Channel. And she was like, well, you know, me and the other black teacher, Ms. LaBowman, we had identified that we needed to protect you um, because you were a black child and you were brilliant. And we knew that that was going to be a problem. And so we made it our business to protect you. And she was like, you know, in your special, you talk about learning the Negro National Anthem in 10th grade. You were singing it in first grade. I had y'all because she was like, there was no way I was going to have a group, a, a room full of all these diverse children talking about this land is your land. with that some bullshit. Yes. And um, and when I moved to Orlando, like that was the first time that I experienced it where people would be like, oh, you only got this because you're black. Yes. And I was like, well, no, I mean, I am black. I got this because I'm as smart as all of you. Right. Um, maybe for them that was a thing, but I know for me, like I will outdance all of you. I will out... <laughs> Like I will out, I will out act all of you. I will out read all of you. Like, what do you want to do? But I just want to see. I just, I honor the work of folks like you because it informs the creative work of myself. Like it's, it's, it feels like the marriage of pragmatism and, you know, creativity that you're talking about, because it's like, I'm always trying to figure out how do I use my creative work to 
to support the pragma, the pragmatic work that is that needs to be doing that needs to be done. Right. And ultimately, I've I've felt like creating community, fostering community, encouraging community, empowering community, and for some people, even introducing the concept of community to them. Like I've had people leave Black Smart Funny and Black and realize, like you know, I really haven't been a part of a Black community my whole life. You know, like I had white people bring black people to Smart Funny and Black and those black people be like, I just really didn't know that there was all of this blackness that I didn't have access to. And it's like knocking down those doors and those walls to continue to connect us to be a force to do what you're talking about. And I I really appreciate you writing this book because this... It's not just the last four years, but innovative thought has become very attacked, right? Like we used to have spaces, I feel like, where you could have ideas and like, even if you hadn't fully fleshed them out, like you could, you know, present the thought process of something and talk about it without people being like, well, did you say? I actually say that one of the the, the the spurs for me to even start thinking in this way was Harry Belafonte at a, at a lunch thing he was saying. And he was, you know, he does this whole castigating <laughs> people. And he wait, just, wait, 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 no, what does he do? Because I know he's doing it like this. So what is he doing? He's very raspy. It's very good. He's very good. Yeah. He's just, he, but he's like taking taking people to task. And taking black folks to task. Taking white, like who's he taking black, to task? Black, black people, white people. He does. He does his whole thing. He's, he's too old. To, you know, he's an elder statesman now. He doesn't have to care. Uh, but at the, he he said in the thing, and I remember this, and I thought about it for a long time. He says, "Where are the revolutionary thinkers?" What? He says, we are we are burying revolutionary thought. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking, I have this perch. I can I can say what I want. Like, am I a revolutionary thinker? And I, and that bounced around a lot and and helped to push me towards this kind of a book. What kept it bouncing around for so long before it landed? I'm trying to figure out what the revolutionary thought was. I mean, I you know. It, you a, a a big thought can really change the world yes. but it's not like you know those big thoughts just happen drop out of the sky all the time like you do have to sit around and put some energy into thinking it through and for me it took a while like what you constantly questioning myself like am i doing the most with my this opportunity to speak to people meaning your column or meaning all, all the ways that i can have a column and tv and Instagram, whatever but talking. like yes of course am i doing enough and also it was important to me to ask myself which i write about i could have spent the rest of my life at park avenue parties and fancy vacations and the whole thing but that was only luxuries for me that had nothing to do with helping my community and i kept having to ask myself so what are you doing to help the rest of the black people? Yep. It is not just about you. And if the only thing you leave this life with is having enjoyed it for you and a, and a crude wealth just for you and lived in space where only you, you were the exceptional Negro and spiced up somebody's parlor room or, or dinner table, then you have failed. And on that note... We come to a close. (laughs) The last dose. That's really the bottom line of all of this. 
the bottom line is making the choice to say that your own personal advancement is not enough. And as black folks, I know folks who push back against that. Like, well, how come? Why can't it be? White folks, there's, stop basing what we should do off of what they do. Right. Like, I just, that is, that's my revolutionary thought. There you go. Stop (laughs) telling me about what white people do to tell me what I should do as a black person. I don't want to hear it. I am so glad that we got to hear hear you. And I really want people to read this book. And I love the fact that you said you wrote it to be digestible. You know, it's it's not Cornell Westian um, where I will have to sit with a with. Sometimes you want to sit with the dictionary. You do. <laughs> but other times you're like, whom is this for? I, I, I. I'm lost. Uh, I'm lost. The, you know, I like to use vocabulary words because I like to utilize the full extent of anything, including the English language. Um, But I really am curious uh, to hear what folks feel about when, like how folks feel like they are moved after reading this because revolutionary thought, uh, if it does anything is it inspires more thought. Yes. And that is something that is integral right now, uh, especially after we have come out of a space that really has been honoring ignorance in a real way. Um, So big ups on the book. I'm inspired in admiration and low-key jealous that you were able to write all of it over a course of four to five days. I want that inspiration to come. No, no, no. that was just a book proposal. That wasn't the book. Oh, that, that was, was a proposal. proposal. Okay, no, 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 like, no, 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 no. There's no like, way in the world. Like, Harriet came there to There is you. no way in the world. Harriet came to you and was like, let me lead you. Let what? me lead. I know. That's I'm like, she, <laughs> she descended upon you, sat here, perched, and said, this is how we shall use your perch. Because I was <laughs> like, I, I can't even imagine. You know, and I feel like, because I really, I, I need to write. I feel like I've been called to write escape in a way that I haven't written before. Like, I feel like I'm always the very like, let's keep it real, let's keep it real. We need to write the real, write the real, write the real, write the real. And in, in, in it, it doesn't feel like it's coming from me in that way right now. And if and I've, I genuinely had to kind of um, figure out like, is that okay? And when it comes to black folks, I just had to realize like, we do need a balance. We always need a balance. We never get the balance. Like, and when you talked about the mothers who are just like exhausted, you know, they puff up and they're exhausted. It's like, uh, as a creative, the question I'm always asking myself is like, are you just creating for yourself? Right. And if it, and if the, it, it, and if it, if I can only come up with well, it's going to make me laugh, then I know to abandon it. Like it has to serve our people in a way that is uplifting, that's encouraging, empowering, et cetera. And um, all of us have that power that that Charles has talked about. And all of us uh, need to be, ex- you know, expanding our mind space. And so get you the devil, you know, <laughs> the Black Power Manifesto. And uh, 
Charles, continue to be the revolutionary thinker that you are. Thank we you so are much. so fortunate to be in your in your in your in the shade of your perch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and let me just also add, Charles yes. was a part of the only, to this day, the only tied game of Smart Funny. Oh, we're not only? I thought there was another one. This no, it was one? just y'all. Y'all are oh. the only one. After you all came Keenan and Kale. After y'all came, but before Keenan Kill, it was y'all. It was Charles Blow and another author, Joan Morgan, at none other than the Apollo. (laughs) It was so much fun. And I just want you to know, like, I have done Smart Funny in Black, I mean, maybe about close to 100 times at this point, because we've been doing the show since 2016. Yes. That was my favorite show. Oh, really? I left my body in that show. <laughs> I'm not even joking. And it it was like the hollowed space of the Apollo. It was the the um the unified thought of everybody in the room really just being there in joyousness. And we had, we made a note of looking at like the range. We had 18-year-olds in there up to 65-year-olds. Wow. Like there was a range, but ultimately it was because you and Joan embodied why I wrote the show. Like I had never seen it in such like just literal presentation. Like, oh, this is what, this is the show. This is the show. Edutainment at its finest. So I, I really like, I'll never forget that. So thank you. You are a legendary master black spirit. Y'all go get the devil you know. Follow Charles M. Blow on uh, Instagram and on the Twitters and read the column in the New York Times. It's one of the ones worth reading. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Star Avenue, a, podca- <clears throat> a podcast network.